Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. It's politics at the boring bits, Monday to Friday from 10 on Times Radio. Just listen to us on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, 100 years since the first Labour Prime Minister. We look back to Ramsay MacDonald, the extraordinary election of 1923, where nobody lost and nobody really won. And are there any lessons from 1923 for Keir Starmer? First, it's time for this... The Columnists on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to Rachel Sylvester is here. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Matt. And no Libby Powers this week, so we've got the uh, political editor of Unheard. Tom McTague is back. Hello, Tom. Hi, thanks for having me. No, good to have you here. So let's start talking about uh, Nigel Farage because um, he'll be cross if we don't. Uh, he's obviously still in the jungle but while he's in the jungle, Rishi Sunak, flying back from COP, was asked whether Nigel Farage could rescue the Tories. And he said, our party has always been a broad church. My focus is consistent, consistently on delivering on the things that matter to people. Uh, leaving, in the parlance, the door open to uh, Nigel Farage joining the Tories. Uh, Tom, you've been looking into Reform UK, which weirdly isn't really a political party. It's a business, which is basically owned by Nigel Farage. What do you think is going on? Will he stick with Reform UK? Will he switch to the Tories? Ultimately, Rishi Sunak as the leader has control over who can stand as a candidate. So actually it's in his gift as to whether or not Nigel Farage could run as a Tory candidate. What, what's your reading of what's going on, Tom? Um, I think he is just keeping his options open. He's flirting with us, isn't he? He's the great... Um, He's just such a great self-publicist. And so I, I don't think he's made up his mind. I mean, there are some in the Reform Party who say, look, ultimately he, will, he won't be able to resist being Donald Trump's wingman in the United States because that's probably the route to earning the most money, right? You know, that's, that's where he can go and stand on stage with tens of thousands of people at these rallies. So there's that challenge. There's, how is he going to do uh, in the jungle? Will people take to him or not? But I don't think he's ruled it out, has he? I mean, he, he went onto the, uh, into the jungle and delivered a message, not just sort of uh, in conversation with somebody, but directly to camera saying, you know, will I ever lead the Conservative Party? Never say never. So he clearly wants to keep that option open. Even I think he referred to himself as the third person, which in itself should be a... Uh... I think probably a hanging offence. Um, what's your what's your reading of this, uh, uh, Rachel? Because 
certain parts of the Conservative Party worry what Nigel Farage is always up to. But if you look at the polls, they are losing uh, votes to the Labour Party as well as to reform. And the risk is they turn more to reform that actually it just ends up alienating more people out, out to the you know centrist voters who will go to the Labour Party. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, in a way, Nigel Farage has always been interesting for his influence on the Conservative Party from outside mm. it rather than in it. So, you know, that was... Arguably, it was he who got the Brexit referendum, but not from within the Tory party. And I think what's interesting now is that the Tory party seems to be moving towards reform. Whether or not Nigel Farage rejoins, the next election for the Tory leader will be in that direction. So Suella Braverman has made pretty clear she's going to stand. Um, Kemi Badenoch as well on the sort of woke warrior platform. At the Tory conference, um, all the candidates who you might think would be in that leadership contest were trying to appeal to the kind of right of the party and they're becoming narrower and narrower the more the base shrinks um, the less representative they're going to be of the wider electorate and I think long term that's very dangerous for the Conservative Party. I was just looking at the polling actually the latest uh, YouGov poll has got uh, Labour on 45% the Tories on 22 but interestingly the Tories are holding on to 55% of their vote from last time around 15 percent of their vote is going uh to the Labour Party 20 percent is going to reform so you can see why they're nervous that actually of that those voters from 2019 um it's that's worrying them more I suppose that the the issue is that the Labour Party is picking up votes from uh, the Tories and loads of uh, Lib Dem voters as well and hanging on to lots of its lots of its own vote um Tom, there's an interesting question that you pose as to what the point of Reform UK is. Is it to destroy the Tory party and replace it? Is it just to keep it constantly under pressure? And actually, if after, as the polls currently look, a a Labour victory, if after that the Tories do shift to a sort of Suella Braverman Conservative Party, then there's no point to Reform UK, is there? That's absolutely right. I mean, this is what's so fascinating. Once you start talking to people in reform and they have different ideas of what the party is ultimately for, you know, some of them will be quite open and say, well, you know, if we could get a true conservative party, then great, then we'll have done our job. And others, they will know that the, the Tory party is irredeemable, you know, and we we are out to destroy them. And they look at, um, at, at what's happening, I don't know, in Holland or in uh, or in with the AFD in Germany. And they think we'll have some of that. You know, if actually if we if we keep going, maybe there can be another one of these revolutions and we can, uh, you know, we can destroy the Tory party and become the main centre right party. And then there's Nigel Farage there flirting with, you know, all of these different options. I think to some extent that undermines reform. And if you speak to some, I think, uh, smart Tory strategists will say, look, if you look at those 15% of voters that have left the Conservative Party directly for Labour, they count double for the 20% who are going to reform because it, you know, you lose some a vote in your constituency and, the, and your main challenger gains one. Whereas if it goes to reform, it doesn't really make a difference if one of your voters goes to reform or just doesn't vote at all. And so they really need to keep their focus on Labour. But also there was an interesting point that they made, that those who are going to reform now are your kind of ultra Tories, your, 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 your most hardline, your Suella Braverman supporters. And so they are also the most opposed 
to the prospect of a, you know, a woke Keir Starmer government coming in. So the Conservative Party are quite hopeful that as the election approaches, they'll be really able to squeeze reform back down to something like three or four percent, which might be manageable for them. Uh, the other point uh, you made in your piece, Tom, is that and lots of people who think they're going to support reform might not realise this, but reform's pitch, their their pla- their long-term plan is proportional representation. That actually yeah. the best outcome for uh, reform is a probably a minority Labour government forced to give the Lib Dems PR, which will would then, in a future election, give reformer a, a toehold in... Parliament. So actually, an outright Labour or Conservative win is the worst thing that could happen for them. That's absolutely right. I mean, if you speak to uh, Richard Tice, the leader of reform, he's, you know, he's absolutely clear on that point. The the goal now is proportional representation. I think it's Nigel Farage's goal as, as well. And if you think about how Nigel Farage came to be such a dominant player in British politics. It comes back all the way, ironically, to Tony Blair's constitutional reforms in, I think, 1998 or 1999, where he introduced uh, proportional representation for uh, elections to the European Parliament. This is the first time uh, that proportional representation had been used for UK-wide elections. And it's from that moment that Nigel Farage joins the European Parliament at the same time, interestingly enough, as Nick Clegg. And obviously, without that, we would have never had the sort of YouTube sensation that became Nigel Farage. So they are, you know, closely intertwined going back uh, a couple of decades now. But reform are not united on this. You know, Anne Widdicombe, one of their leading figures, has got an opt-out from campaigning for proportional representation. She says it's, you know, it's appalling. (laughs) You know, they're not even united on on, on that one question. And if you think about it, our electoral system has meant that we've end, we've always had coalitions within parties. Mm. But what Boris Johnson did was he purged the moderates from the Conservative Party. So the, he drove the Tories more towards that reform fragmented mm. direction. Um, so I think there's another, there's sort of bigger forces at play in a way. Well, we'll see uh, see what happens when he comes out of the jungle, and if 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 he does put his money where his mouth is, um, so to speak. Uh, let's turn our attention to uh, the thing that got everyone in politics talking over the weekend: Keir Starmer saying he admires Margaret Thatcher, wanted to imitate her driving sense of purpose, caused quite the fuss over the weekend. Here is Keir Starmer speaking to the BBC's Broadcasting House. You can distinguish political leaders certainly in the post-war period, into those that had a plan and a sense of mission and those that drifted, essentially. And um, that's why I referenced Thatcher, now, um, who did have a plan for entrepreneurialism, um, had a mission. Doesn't mean I agree with what she did, but I don't think anybody could suggest that she didn't have a driving sense of purpose. Sense of purpose there. The exact words that Ed Miliband used in 2014 when he praised Margaret Thatcher's uh, sense of purpose to reform unresponsive public services. In 2010, Nick Clegg praised Margaret Thatcher's legacy. In 2007, Gordon Brown heaped praise on Margaret Thatcher. Uh, And in fact, you go all the way back to 1994... Uh, just after he became uh, Labour leader, Tony Blair gave an interview to the Times in which he said it was the clear sense of an identifiable project for the Tory party that I did admire. It is absolutely essential in politics. That is what keeps you going. So we're just 
at that point in the electoral cycle, Rachel, where the leader of the opposition <laughs> praises Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, and I think Labour's, of course, has to win back Conservative voters or people who voted Conservative at the last election, at the very least, in order to win power. So, in a way, Keir Starmer's right to want to reach across the aisle. He can't be tribal. When um, I interviewed him uh, a few months ago with Alice Thompson, we said to him, what did he think of all those T-shirts, never kissed a Tory? And he said, well, I couldn't use that slogan. So, he had, you know, he was trying even then to say... He wasn't a kind of labour, tribal, inward-looking person. uh, For me, the article in The Telegraph, it was a tiny bit try-hard because it was in The (laughs) Telegraph. It was sort of, actually, there's a wider argument here. But I think in terms of what what he's saying is he wants to be, if he wins, a sort of radical prime minister who changes things. He doesn't want to be a sort of incremental, managerial technocrat. The problem is the the policies he's putting forward so far are more kind of technocratic and managerial. It's apart from the sort of um, green uh, New Deal fund that he's proposed, which has actually been shelved. The, the problem is, I mean, maybe this is slightly the point, but he's he's been attacked from all sides. Uh, well, from the left anyway. Some of his own peas, Kim Johnson, who's an MP in... Uh, in Liverpool, she said Margaret Thatcher did nothing for working class communities in Liverpool and across the country, destroyed industries, attacked trained unions and privatised our core industries. Ian Lavery said, I can assure you, my constituents do not in any way share this view. Thatcher brutalised the miners and their families. There's a view amongst some in Labour, Tom, that if, if Keir Starmer's upsetting these people, he's upsetting the right people. Is it? Does he need to do it when he's 20, 25 points ahead in the polls? Does he need to have the obligatory row with the left about what he thinks about Margaret Thatcher? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it, it, it helps, doesn't it? Going back to that point that we were talking about, um, that every voter that he can win off the Conservative Party counts for double than, you know, a voter that comes from somewhere else. So there's kind of, I suppose, a core electoral logic to what he's doing. And as you said, it's what all Labour leaders have have done. Gordon Brown inviting Mrs Thatcher to number 10, Tony Blair praising her. So it it, it goes all the way back. But I did see something quite interesting. I think it was John McTurnan was pointing out that when the Labour Party have hit 45% in the polls and the Conservatives are are at 20, there aren't any floating voters left to win. They're all, they've all, they've floated off. They're in, they've gone somewhere else. So I suppose it's about locking them down and just reassuring them that, you know, that he isn't the, you know, lefty, wokey, radical that they, you know, maybe the Conservatives will try and uh, paint him as, as we head towards the election. I mean, I, I agree, though, uh, with Rachel, that it did seem a little bit try-hardy to do this in in the Sunday Telegraph. It's a bit it's a bit too obvious what he's trying to do. Um, and actually, the interesting thing about the, the, the John McTernan point about there aren't any floating voters, what we've found is when we've uh, done focus groups with people who've said they voted Conservative last time and now say they're going to vote Labour, then they're, they're more floaty than maybe their position in the uh, in the polling com- column suggests, and, and so there, there doesn't seem to be a constant job of work to be done by the Labour Party to sort of try and lock them in because they're not completely sold. It's a very anti-Tory thing, not not pro-Labour. Yeah, we've done focus groups for the Health Commission as well and it's a lot to do with um, they can't be any worse. Several people Mm. in different parts of the country have used that phrase, they can't be any worse than the Conservatives, but they're not Mm. enamoured of Keir Starmer or Labour. But on the other hand, they're not terrified of him or put off by him in the way they were of Jeremy Corbyn. 
So I think he's got to be careful. To He needs to win people over with a positive message rather than just a sort of um, anti-Tory message or a kind of uh, wooing Thatcherite's message. And it's quite it's interesting when you're trying to betray yourself now as an admirer of Margaret Thatcher when two or three years ago you were sitting in the shadow cabinet of Jeremy Corbyn and calling him a friend of yours. So that's a set, that's a set of void. Now, Helen Rumbelow is here to tell us whether or not we are successful what is the key to success and happiness, Helen? Well, I think the big surprise for me from this big piece of research is just given that we hear so many bad things about Britain and, you know, the last five years has been a lot. <laughs> Despite all of that, we are pretty pleased with ourselves. Um, so when asked to rate people out of 10, like how successful do you think you are, um, most of us gave ourselves a 7 to 10. And a really big chunk gave ourselves a 9 to 10. Um, and most people are satisfied. So we are, you know, despite everything, we think we're doing pretty well. <laughs> it's weird. There's always this disconnect, though, between sort of the national picture. You know, in the same way that yeah. people say, oh, the NHS isn't real job, but their own experience might have been okay. It's the same with their own lives. That You know, you can think that the, the country's going to the dogs, but actually I'm, I'm doing all right. So looking yes. through this, this, you, uh, this Ipsos uh, poll, yeah. signs of what, what makes a success, things that show a person is successful, owning your own home, having savings or assets you could leave to your family, having built up a good pension, then a second. But most of those things are sort of, you know, they're, they're, they require a bit of work and effort and luck on your part, but they're all obtainable. It's got sort of a low... You know, so it's a reasonably low bar that if you clear that, you think you're doing okay. Yeah, and I think when you look at that, you picked out some of the top ones, but when you look about at some of those ones that are in the top 10, what I found interesting was quite a lot of them were to do with not working. Yeah. So it was the ability to kind of reject work yeah, in a kind of comfortable way. Yeah, 47% having retired early. Yes. 56% a second home. Yeah. Uh, and 42% um, not needing to work. Exactly. Having time to few hobbies outside of work. Mm. What do you think is a success, Rachel? Well, I think it's, there's a really interesting question about whether success and happiness are the same thing. So in this survey, it seems to sort of merge them. But actually, a lot of the most successful people I've interviewed over the years actually aren't very happy. So yes. uh, particularly for our podcast, Alice and I talk to people who've had some kind of trauma in their childhood. And that often drives them on to be more successful in kind of yes. traditional terms than people who haven't had, haven't lost a parent or haven't had some terrible disability. If you look at the number of prime ministers who've lost a parent, they're driven to succeed in conventional terms by being mm. unhappy. Um, so, but what's interesting about this survey is it kind of blends the two, I think. Well, that theme does come through quite strongly, actually, because when you look at people who rate themselves uh, a 9 out of 10 for success, the biggest group likely to do that is people who've had no formal education, formal qualifications. And the people who are most likely to rate themselves as successful are amongst the poorest um wage bracket and on the other hand people are likely to say them that they're not satisfied so the ambitious people they are in the highest wage bracket so there's that kind of theme coming so the through money, money doesn't buy happiness yeah you yeah, can yeah. actually be very content and financially not successful yeah. like that's 
um, that I was picking that up with research because I was like, this is strange. Are we like a nation of sort of Buddhist monks that are happy <laughs> at these low levels? And he was like, actually, what's going on with Britain as a whole, and this is maybe worrying in some ways for economists, is that we're getting older. You're much more likely to feel yeah. satisfied. You're much less ambitious when you're older. And we are getting older. We're getting to that sort of plump stage <laughs> of British What about you, life. Tom? Are you a success? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I never feel like that. I mean, I, 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 one thing I uh, once heard was that, that how you judge your success is based on what you assumed it to be when you were younger. So if you assumed that, you know, having a, a detached house uh, with a double drive was uh, what meant success, then if you can't get that, then you feel unhappy and unsuccessful. Uh, and obviously, it's become harder to to get those to get those things. So, if you have low um, aspirations or have low ideas about what a successful life means, then it's easier to feel that you're a success. But it's interesting that that whole idea of of the the higher up you are, the more on paper, you know, more money, high status job, the the more anxious you might feel about your position is 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 an interesting counterpoint, Rachel. Yeah, and it's back to that point about you can be incredibly successful on paper, but that doesn't bring you contentment. And actually, you know, what is success? Is success actually being having a happy family, you know, children who haven't gone off the rails, a good marriage, or is success earning a lot of money? Um, there are lots of different ways to define success, but I'm, I'm fascinated that people in this survey seem to define success as actually as contentment. Yeah. I mean, there's another factor here, which is really interesting, which is, I think, at odds with how we think of Britain as well. A lot of people thought the way to be successful was pure meritocracy. Um, you know, number one was treating people well. Number two was yeah. sort of hard work. Then it was talent. It was this picture of Britain as this incredibly meritocratic <laughs> place, which I think is at odds at how we think of sort of our class-ridden society. But maybe it's sort of also what we sort of hope that if you do work hard, you'll get on rather than relying on being lucky, which only what, one in five. The last like. one yeah, was yeah. lucky. People hate luck. And when I spoke to <laughs> social scientists, they were like, luck is huge, yeah, yeah. but we're actually a bit terrified of like luck. It. Yeah, yeah. It's not very flattering to our ego. And it's a bit scary. Tom McTague from Unheard and Rachel Sylvester from The Times. Of course, and you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's 100 years since Labour's first PM. 
in the story of our country. And I hope most sincerely that you are all to bear a noble part in the fight. That rather scratchy recording is the voice of Ramsay MacDonald. And we're playing it because a hundred years ago this week, on the 6th of December 1923, Britain went to the polls for an election that nobody lost, but nobody won. It was an election which shattered the mould in British politics because it heralded the country's first Labour government. It was a radical departure of what had gone before, the Liberals and the Conservatives, Instead, a group of socialists whose party had been in existence for less than 20 years suddenly took charge of Britain and her empire. So today we're going to find out just how it happened and how an illegitimate son of a crofter, Ramsay MacDonald, became Labour's first Prime Minister. I'm joined today by uh, David Torrance, author of The Wild Men. It's out in January. Uh, he'll explain why they're called Wild Men. Hi, David. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, I'm very good. And in the studio, Times Radio Senior Political Correspondent, columnist and Labour history obsessive. I mean, look, I've, ri- I've, I've written a popular history of the modern Labour Party, Matt. I've never claimed to be a historian on David's uh, yeah, yeah, level. Of course, but... of course, but Patrick McGuire is here. Uh, first of all, then, uh, let's set the scene. Uh, the election was in December 1923. The last time we had a, a de- December election until, of course, 2019, Stanley Baldwin's leading a Conservative government with a comfortable majority. He could have waited for another four years, but he decided to go to the country. Why, David? So it came down to economic uh, policy. Um, Unemployment was bad at this point. It's just after the First World War. The economic consequences of that are still playing out. Baldwin has reached the conclusion that the only way to solve unemployment is through something called protection. So this is restricting uh, free trade uh, and giving preference to trade with the Commonwealth dominions, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. The trouble is that Boner Law, Baldwin's predecessor, had pledged when he was prime minister and before he died not to change uh, economic policy without going to the country, so without a general election. And so Baldwin, having reached this conclusion on a fairly radical shift in fiscal policy, uh, thinks he has to ask for voters' permission and therefore call an election. So it was an election he didn't have to call, but he felt that he should because he was changing uh, policy. In uh, Before the election, uh, or the previous election, the Tories had, uh, the Conservatives, understanding, had 344 seats. Um, uh, the Labour Party and the Liberals on about the same. So Labour 142, uh, Liberals 150. What state was the Labour Party in? Bearing in mind, uh, Patrick, it had only been in existence for, what, two decades? Yeah, no, the, the Labour Party, as we know it, founded in... <clears throat> Uh, 1906 and over the past two decades it grows slowly uh, there is there are big debates within the Labour Party over who has authority, ultimate authority, is it the trade unions, is it the parliamentary Labour Party but in the elections of 1910 uh, and uh, 1922 uh, the Labour Party is making big advances, uh, relatively big advances from its low base. And the other thing that changes in British politics is that the Liberals have a catastrophic split uh, during the war. And, you know, you have Lloyd George challenging Asquith, and that sort of splits the main party of British progressivism at the time. And so by the early 20s, the Labour Party suddenly leaps to become the main party of 
British uh, progressivism. So in the general election then that took place 100 years ago this week, uh, the Tories were down more than 80 seats. They were left with 258. So still the biggest party. Labour came second on 191. The Liberals, 158. So uh, the Tories the biggest party, but without a majority now. So, um, David, take us through how Ramsay MacDonald then ends up becoming Prime Minister. Because it, it takes a while. We're used to, you know, politics, bang, bang, bang. It's all done. We thought the, the, the coalition in 2010 taking five days was a long time. Take us through the process of how Ramsay MacDonald ends up as Prime Minister. Yeah, it's quite difficult to get a handle on this. Because as you say, on the face of it, the Tories have won the election, albeit uh, as a minority. Um, So you have a sort of rough three-way split in the House of Commons. And the dynamic is this. It sort of operates on a number of levels. Baldwin had proposed protection uh, as a policy in that election. That had been uh, rejected by a majority of MPs and by a majority of voters. Tories had recently been in coalition with the Liberals. That had broken up quite bitterly in 1922. So that option was off uh, the table. The Conservatives didn't fancy uh, governing as a minority. Uh, and that, therefore, in constitutional terms, meant uh, that the King would send for uh, the leader of the opposition, and that would be Ramsay MacDonald. Um It takes a long time. Um, The the situation is quite unclear. It only dawns on Ramsay MacDonald the day after the election. He's still in the South Wales constituency that uh, a Labour government might even be in prospect. Baldwin initially thinks about resigning straight away, but eventually a consensus builds that Baldwin should wait until Parliament reconvenes in in January uh, to see if it's possible for him to carry on. And if it's not, that will then confirm uh, the consensus that's really already been reached by Christmas 1923, that there will be a Labour government. Um, now, the thing that uh, is striking about Ramsay MacDonald in this situation, because he, he sort of staged a mini-coup to take over the leadership of the Labour Party a few years before Patrick. When I was writing my book, I went to the National Archive and looked at Ramsay MacDonald's diaries. He's miserable about this whole process. His, his wife has died, his son's died. Uh, he keeps using these phrases that, that, that there's no one here to to share. The victory has come, but there's no one here to cheer. All my people are dead. He's on the cusp of making history as the first Labour Prime Minister. And he's finding it all a bit miserable. And he retreats to his house in, in Lossiemouth to sort of contemplate his fate. And the other thing to consider is, as you said at the top of this discussion, Matt, this is the illegitimate son of a crofter who has no, very little formal education, has taught himself everything he knows about politics by correspondence courses and activism. So it's really important not to understate just how much of a sort of incongruous leap it was to be the man who's now going to the king to uh, going to George V to be asked to form a government. You know, when he goes to Buckingham Palace for the first time, he has to hire his court dress from Mossbros. So no wonder it's no wonder it's a massive psychological burden for him and i think and i don't know what david thinks about this you know macdonald has been sort of traduced by history as a sort of shameless social climber you know listeners of a certain age will remember the the novel and the tv series famous the spur which was about uh a sort of similar Labour leader called Hamer Shawcross, who was seduced by the aristocracy, and that's an allegation that's made about McDonald time and time again. But as you say, 
at the time, it's a huge, sort of almost traumatic, personally, and sort of massive transition for him to make. David, let me come to you. Just explain who the Wild Men were, the title of your your book. As uh, Ramsay McDonald's, there he is, he's miserable, he's spending Christmas at home in uh, Lossiemouth in Scotland. He's putting together his cabinet. He's not even sure that there are enough people uh, up to the job within the Labour Party to form a government. Yeah, um, well, as you said earlier, Labour have 191 MPs. So even for a minority government, that's that's not much to, to work with. And in terms of experience, uh, very few of them had, had been in government. Only a couple had been in the wartime coalition, the First World War, uh, one or two more as junior uh, ministers. And Ramsay MacDonald himself, of course, had no experience of, of government. He'd only uh, returned as leader of the party uh, the previous year. Um, so he is quite gloomy about it. I, I think we can put some of that down to, to his Presbyterianism, uh, innate, innate Scottish uh, gloom. Um, but he starts over Christmas at Lossiemouth, uh, where he sort of retreated with only one or two advisors to plan how he can pull together a credible uh, government. So the wild men, to explain that title, this was a, a pejorative term used by political opponents and by the media at the time. And it was very much part of a sort of uh, unionist or conservative and media effort to, to smear uh, Labour figures, these future Labour ministers, as some sort of extremists, sort of rabid uh, Bolshevists. And, and bear in mind that the Russian Revolution was still pretty fresh in voters' uh, mind. But what he comes up with is is actually quite intriguing. Not only does he have to sort of balance various elements of his own party, so trade unionists, uh, the more sort of intellectual wing Fabians like uh, Sidney Webb, um, and also the Clydesiders, so a sort of contingent of, of quite uh, left-wing MPs, mainly from the west of Scotland. But he pulls in sort of external elements, so old liberal aristocrats who sort of have socialist leanings are sort of implored to join his government. Uh, there's even a former conservative, which takes everyone by surprise, uh, uh, Lord Chelmsford, I think, who becomes first Lord of the Admiralty, and also law officers. Uh, so he's really struggling for, for Labour people to fill those posts. And in the case of Scotland, so the Lord Advocate and the Solicitor General for Scotland, he ends up appointing Conservatives, much to the to the fury of, of the Clydeside contingent. So it is actually a coalition government, not in the formal sense that we would recognise today, but in terms of including lots of different elements uh, from yeah. different walks of life. It's almost like Gordon Brown's government, all the talents. The weird thing is, even though he's, you know, he's struggled to fill the cabinet, uh, he describes it in his diaries as the most horrible job in my life. And then when I was going through his diaries, it really, because he, he was so miserable trying to put together his uh, cabinet. Uh, only a couple of his jo colleagues were even grateful just to be offered a job. One after another just complained about it. One uh, aggrieved colleague got his wife to write to Ramsay <laughs> McDonald to complain. Uh, and he said, uh, he wrote in his diary, I feel like an executioner. I knock so many ambitious heads into my basket. After this, every man will be my enemy. Which is sort of probably, that's probably a sentiment that every reshuffling uh, party leader has, has faced um, since. Uh, uh, Patrick, it, I mean, it's 100 years ago. Obviously, politics has changed a lot. Are there any lessons from what happened 100 years ago in Ramsay McDonald's experience for today's Labour Party and Keir Starmer. I think from the sequence of events, it sets in train. So, 
in December 23, Ronnie McDonald wins. He's out of power by October 24. Uh, the Labour Party returns to power in 1929. Then in 1931, uh, in the teeth of a global recession, global depression indeed. He and Philip Snowden, his Chancellor, who is the very embodiment of sort of Victorian economic orthodoxy, they face a very difficult decision about how to uh, respond to uh, the prospect of leaving the gold standard. They're facing a sort of Hobson's choice between uh, rising inflation if they get off the gold standard or cutting employment benefit, and they're so wedded to that economic orthodoxy, uh, they choose the uh, cutting unemployment benefit and, and half the cabinet resigns. And he forms a government with the uh, a national government with the Conservatives. And at the same time, in that in that sort of period, that preceding period, you have a Labour government that is... In, very, in a very, very raw sense, experiencing the problem that every Labour government since has experienced, which is how do you reassure the establishment and how do you serve your own voters and, and, and to what extent it does one mean betraying the other? So wh- what are the lessons? I mean, it, it depends really what you think about, about that sort of economic decision they made in, in 1931. But one thing that always sticks with me is in, in, in that sort of period you have... You know, the, the, the Ramsay MacDonald and other people in the Labour Party sort of butting heads about how radical to be in response to the Depression in particular. And, uh, you know, some people listening might think this is a bit crass, but, uh, you know, you have Oswald Mosley, who at the time is not yet a fascist, uh, in the Labour Party. He's in the cabinet. He's given a sort of pokey office in the Treasury. and he, He's desperate to solve the, the unemployment question. And he sort of brings forward this proto-Keynesian sort of uh, Mosley memorandum for a sort of British, what you call now British New Deal and sort of, you know, Snowden and other people in the Labour Party are sort of really opposed to doing anything like that and sort of it drives Mosley. It's part of the reason Mosley leaves mainstream politics, sets up his new party and then becomes a becomes a fascist. So you do sort of wonder, you look back on that government now and there, there are some people who'd say, look, you know, the consequence of leaving the gold standards would have been massive inflation, their hands were tied, they didn't have many options. But there'll be other people who'd say, look, they were so in, so hidebound by the desire to uh, be credible in the eyes of the electorate, in the eyes of the establishment, and didn't want to sort of... They sort of overcorrected. Yeah, they, over, they overcorrected yeah, yeah. and sort of destroyed the party, you know, for... Uh, they split the party and, uh, you know, sort of poison the well of sort of left-wing thinking. So I think that's sort of something to be aware of. You know, if you are so sort of wedded to, you know, mainstream, sort of mainstream economics or whatever, mainstream credibility, there is a chance that you sort of drive people into darker places if you're not seen to rise to the big economic challenges of the day. And given that Keir Starmer is giving a speech today basically saying... You know, I'm going to stick with austerity as we go forward. It's something to bear in mind. Let's take a look now at the at the man himself, Ramsay MacDonald. His remarkable journey from a working-class childhood in Scotland to the steps of number 10. Uh, we can speak now to Iona Kilhorn. She is Ramsay MacDonald's granddaughter and still lives in the house in the town of Lossiemouth. It was so important where he retreated to form uh, that first Labour government. Iona, hello. Hello. Um, can you just give us a sense of... The Ramsay MacDonald that you you knew and heard about growing up, rather than the one that's written about in history books? Well, I didn't know him at all, but I heard very little also. Politics was not a a very comfortable subject, as you can imagine. But uh, since coming here to Lossiemouth and living in his house, I've really had to 
learn about him and read about him and find out about him from the people who did know him. Some of them even in 10 Downing Street. Some of the girls here, the fishing girls, went, worked, went down to London to get a job opening the door or cooking the porridge in 10 Downing Street. And that was because, uh, up until that point, the people who became Prime Minister had their own wealth and their own money and their own furniture and so on. And so this this actually quite poor man from a fishing village in Scotland needed That's to right. do the same I thing. I mean, uh, members of Parliament weren't even paid until 1912, I think. But as you say, the furniture had to be quickly bought from a second-hand market or an auction or somewhere. The, the pictures, we've got to have pictures on the wall. Where do we get them from? I've got uh, ten pictures of Elgin Cathedral. Elgin is the nearest town in, to Lossiemouth. I can imagine somebody or other was told, get some pictures and send them to 10 Downing Street. We need them. So they got them, and I've got them back again. Afterwards, they came back into this house, which he built in 1910. And it was the house that he, he I know, he retreated to, you know, when, when That's right. Westminster yes. was becoming... He built a... it originally so that his wife, uh, Margaret Gladstone, a uh, very good-looking lad, she, she thought, I'm going to take him as her husband. Marvellous. It was a real love match. And, uh, but all right, he needs a bit of polish and he needs a little background education. We'll travel. What do you do with five children when you're traveling? You send them to Granny. Where does Granny live? Blossomouth. Granny hasn't got a house. Build her one. And this is the house that they built in 1908, I think. 1910 is wrong. Yeah. Well, but let's just remind ourselves a bit about um, his background, just how far he traveled to reach uh, number 10. This is a clip of uh, Frank Markham, who is Ramsay MacDonald's private secretary, talking about his upbringing and his father. Let's take a listen. I remember one day Ramsay telling me that when he was eight or nine years of age, his mother said to him, Ramsay, we're going for a long walk today. And they walked, and it must have been eight or nine miles, until they came to the crest of a run of hills. And they looked down into the long valley below, where the only moving object appeared to be a solitary ploughman in the distance. And presently his mother said to him, Ramsay, yon's your father. And that, I think, was the only time Ramsay saw his father. It's an amazing clip, that Iona. It is, isn't it? Uh, I've heard that one before, yes. It was in his book. And, and that hangover, this illegitimacy, was a, sort of a black mark against him personally. And I think he fought against this. He's, he must have thought, even as a child, I'll show them. Yeah. And that's what he, he sort of it drove him. Um, let's bring David uh, Torrance back in. Uh, David, what made you want to look at this period? I mean, it struck me when I when I was sort of looking more and more into Ramsay Macdonald, just how how little I knew about it. How how little been, I think more books have been written about Ed Miliband than I could find have been written about uh, Ramsay Macdonald. Mm. Um, despite the fact that actually, David, it's an amazing story from illegitimate yeah. son of a farmhand to the steps of Downing Street, first Labour Prime Minister making history. Then he comes back. And then he's denounced as a traitor and thrown out. It, it, regardless of your, your view of the politics, there's an amazing life story, David. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the dormant, the now dormant journalist in me was just very uh, grabbed by the, the story. And it's also one, as you say, that's not, not really been told. Um, David Marquand did a, a very mm. authoritative biography of 
Rams the McDonald, but that came out the year I was born. That was 1977. And, and it just seems to me quite obscure history, which given the importance of the fact it was the first Labour government and the, the two-party system it gave rise to, um, that it needed a bit more attention. And of course, the centenary is coming up. Uh, I love a good anniversary. It's always a good hook for uh, an article and certainly f- for a book. Uh, yeah, so that's how it came about. Initially, actually, I was going to do a, a full new biography of Ramsay MacDonald, but uh, working with my excellent agent uh, at North Bank, we uh, boiled that down to a much more focused look at, at the first government. And the same question to, to you, David, that I asked uh, Patrick earlier. Are there lessons from this period for politics today, do you think? I can't really get into that. I'll, I'll leave the, I'll leave the, the modern parallels uh, to Patrick. But as I say, it gave those two elections, 1923 and 24, gave rise to the two-party system that we still have. So Tory Labour governments alternating usually sometimes with the coalition, which was the major break from the old liberal Tory uh, duopoly. There are parallels, I think, um, but I will leave that up to readers <laughs> to, to see where those are. Uh, just finally, Iona, it, um, why do you think Lossy Mouth held such appeal for him? When, you know, he one minute he was in Downing Street, it was, go, it was an extraordinary moment when these socialists go to Buckingham Palace in their morning dress to swear allegiance to the king and take their seals of office and all that, and yet he was happiest uh, in Lossiemouth, in that house that he built. Why, why was that, do you think? Well, these are his people, and they always have been. Lossiemouth in those days was three villages, and there was the very snobby uh, Stockfield and the Sea Town where he came from. Even Sea Town now has got uh, a road straight through, which apparently he walked down from the house he built down to sit with a friend of his, and they'd just sit there smoking their pipes. That road is sort of Downing Street. It was called Downing Street, and uh, that's where he felt comfortable. He could just do nothing, uh, and nobody would nag him uh, and so on, except up in Stockfield, the golf course is probably a famous one and even the house the ha- he wanted to book the house up on the top of the hill and was told i quote red bastards do not build up here and that was because that was because of his earlier because he was a, a socialist and a bastard not, uh, not a illegitimately yeah. you know born yeah and, and that was, so was that the, even predated him going into uh, into power i know it's lovely to speak to you again i know Horn, ramsay mcdonald's uh, granddaughter still lives in uh, the house in Lossiemouth in scotland where ramsay mcdonald uh, which ramsay mcdonald had built and uh, and lived and formed the first labor government 100 years ago uh, this christmas david really good to speak to you david Todd's there author of the wild men which is out in the new year is that right david that's right mid january very good uh, which obviously marks the centenary of the government actually being formed because it took such a long time. Uh, Patrick McGuire, lovely to see uh, Times Radio senior political correspondent and uh, Labour historian. Popular historian of the Labour Party. Left out the entire story of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Labour under Corbyn, in all good bookshops now. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. If you want to get in touch about anything at all, email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs> 